Hey, everybody. Happy Sunday. Happy September 18th. I wanted to share with everyone what we happened or what happened, what we did on the streets in, on Fayette Street in Concha Hawkins. So let's see. Hopefully my clicker's working. There we go. Okay, so there is the CVC tent there. We had a whole bunch of fun activity going on, and what we were doing is we were setting up for the Fun Fest, uh, just sharing God's love in a practical way and having fun connecting with people in the community. We've probably had several hundred people uh, that we interacted with, so I'll give you a few little like zoom-in highlights if you can't see that uh, too much. So we uh, had our balloon team. I couldn't get everyone on the camera, so this is just when our cameraman, Nick Denton, credit Nick Denton, photography. Well done, Nick. So, so we only got the like first shift where he was working, so this isn't everybody. We had a great crew. By the way, if you're listening, you're helping. Thank you so much to everyone who came out. I think we had probably about 20 people uh, helping over the course of those uh, eight hours or so. So it was great. So we blew up at least, my, to, according to my calculations, if my math is right, at least 200 <laughs> balloons. So we gave out, we ran out. We had a reputation by the end that we were the balloon tent. Uh, and so people were coming to us even after we ran out of helium. And by the way, there's a worldwide helium shortage. So we were offering something very valuable and people didn't know it. So some people were actually like losing their balloons and coming back for more. So the lucky guy got the last one. Um, we also had a kids craft that we set up. This is wonderful. Uh, Gina did a great job or or organizing that. We did these little leaves. Um, maybe I should have taken the pictures. If you want to find out more about that, ask Gina. It was brilliant. Kids loved it and it was manageable. It was a little bit better than the slime year where the volunteers were just got slimed in that process. It was terrible. They did not like it. Kids loved it. The volunteers did not so much like it, but it was a lot of fun for them. Um, we also ended out free, uh, go back, free water. They, it says ice water, but people were coming up and looking for water ice. And I had to tell them, no, it's not water ice or water ice, as they would say. It's ice water. So we uh, gave out, I think, 30 gallons worth of water. So we were pretty popular there, and that was fun. We got to interact with people. Not only did we hand, you might have seen this slide already, water to people, but we handed out water to dogs, and the dogs loved it. That dog is named Zeus, so we got to feed Zeus some water, and this dog, unlike Zeus, is named Potato. So <laughs> back to back. So Zeus and Potato got to enjoy of the free gift of water, the gift of life, the gift that keeps on giving. Um, we also uh, had kids helping, and they helped by eating potato chips and sitting in chairs, so I'm thankful for that. Uh, but no, they were, they were helpful with the kids, uh, but just super cute. And then I wanna share this image. It was pretty cool, we did something different. So as parents were waiting around, sometimes like Kevin, for example, uh, and Sloan had an interaction too, but uh, we're listening uh, to the Holy Spirit to see if there are any prophetic words for the people. So they wrote it down on an index card, and you can see him there, and he's going up and sharing with this gentleman um, you know, what he felt like the Holy Spirit said, and they were blown away. I mean, like, wow, that, that resonates. And if you want to hear another cool more story, ask Sloan about how they reacted when Sloan was sharing some words. But it's just wonderful. They felt so blessed, and it's really cool to be out there sharing the good news of Jesus, but with power, with using our spiritual gifts like we've talked about. So I was super excited about that opportunity. Um, so anyway, uh, one of the other interesting dynamics that I've noticed and some of the volunteers noticed is that on the street there are a lot more different kinds of offerings, spiritual. There's a couple of churches out there, which is great. Uh, there's also a lot of people offering like tarot card readings and those kind of spiritual kind of things, which seems to be 
different than in years past. Even pre-pandemic, there seems to be an increase. Also, you may have heard, I think Teresa mentioned a previous week, uh, there is a witchcraft store that's opening, and they had a booth that was off to the side where their shop is as well. So the spiritual climate in America and in Conshohocken is, is really changing, just to say that. So what the spiritual offerings are diversifying, to say it in a really, uh, I guess, plain kind of way, but things are, are different in our faith culture today. Uh, they really are. Things are changing. In the public schools, for instance, I've talked to several parents recently, even at middle school events, and those parents have told me, listen, I don't know if I can have my kids in public school anymore because they're getting ridiculed for their faith. That is something that I didn't really hear, I didn't experience personally myself growing up. And this isn't just one parent, there's multiple parents. There's even parents uh, in our church who are very concerned about what they're being exposed to in the public school environment in terms of what's being taught, and understandably so. Things have been changing. And so this is a dynamic and a tension that a lot of us wrestle with, and you can see it in the streets. You can see it in the schools. You can see it in the culture. You can see it all over um, the, you know, all over the news and wherever you are. And in fact, uh, it's not just kids, though, that are dealing with this. Of course, adults are, are dealing with this quickly, rapidly changing uh, faith landscape, so to speak. So here, I, there's some interesting, I did some research, there's some interesting statistics. Um, as I was studying folks like uh, Ed Stetzer, who does a lot of research uh, of Christianity in America and these sorts of things, but one of the things that he's noticed is that the trends, if you look at the math, there's like a basic curve that you can see, how, or maybe it'd be more of a decrease. The trend, the faith trends that we were supposed to see happening in 2040 and 2050, post-pandemic are happening now. So some of these researchers are saying, hey, welcome to 2040 already, that these faith trends that were, we were heading towards have been accelerated because of the pandemic. Even pre-pandemic, uh, listen to this, two out of every three youth who were part of a church environment left. And this is, this are, these are just the basic facts. Two out of every three youth, young people, out of high school who were part of a church left the church, and never went back again. That's, that's the spiritual reality we're facing. Also, you may know post-pandemic, uh, where there was a lot of more faith involvement, engagement happening, one out of every three people have left and not gone back to church post-pandemic as well. So not only were these trends starting pre-pandemic, but now those things have been exacerbated and accelerated, and we find ourselves in a very unique, interesting situation. Well, let's just say things are different, okay? Whether you want to, how you want to paint that, things are very different, and this is the world that we're, we're living in. And uh, as pastors, as I speak to pastors, even this past week, and the week before I pray with them, all pastors everywhere, at least in our region that I, that I know and interact, even across the country, are facing these same difficulties. The difficulties are, is that the influence that churches can have on people seems to be waning with, with the glut of information that's available on the internet, whether it's on Netflix or podcasts or Facebook or YouTube or TikTok or name any number of sources, it is becoming increasingly difficult for pastors, for church leaders, for churches to bring influence. Where we're here, what are we here? I'm going to speak for maybe 30 minutes or so, but then how, how can we, some pastors like, how can we compete when people are listening to hours and hours, sometimes daily, of content that contradicts what 
Scripture does or what God wants from people's lives. And so this is a really, it's something I wrestle with and I have wrestled with, I mean, since we started the church, but during the pandemic and after the pandemic, these faith Issues of faith, are, it's a real deal. There, there are new challenges that, that, that we face as a, as a church body and as believers and disciples of Jesus. These are new trends that are, are just accelerating what's already been happening. And people are losing their faith more and more readily and seeing the church as irrelevant or even harmful. And then even put into the background. So in the background of all that are the churches or movements that have been, at worst, abusive towards people uh, or have been... You've fallen into immorality or there's these big uh, scandals that have happened. And so that's in the background where people are not only looking at churches as irrelevant or not important, but some are looking at faith, sometimes the Christian faith, sometimes faith in general, whatever it might be, as harmful. Not just, not just something that is, should be ignored, but so there's, there's that dynamic too. And so it's with this this cultural, sh- this shifting landscape that's changing beneath our feet, kind of like a Mario video game where the blocks are falling out beneath you, we find like, I find like I'm often running and shifting groundwork. And that's, that's, that's where we find ourselves today in, our, in, in the world of faith. And so these are sad trends. These are alarming trends. They're things we need to be, pay attention to. I don't think they're things we need to fear. It's not, we don't need to be afraid, but we need to acknowledge that this is the truth of what's happening. Just right now, faith in America, in, in the world, there are changing perspectives very quickly, and not all perspectives align with God and his kingdom. And it is with this that we get to our final message, which I was supposed to uh, share with you a couple weeks ago, but that got hijacked by your loving response to the Han family who wanted to pray, pray them off. Um, and it's great that we have Aaron here today. Welcome uh, for one of your, I don't know if this is your last time ever, but we love you guys. So that's what we're, we're going to talk. And Jude is a letter that was written in almost a very similar situation, except 2,000 years earlier, in which there were these threats that were threatening the church, and uh, he, uh, he gives a wake-up call. He writes a, and I want to just give you a warning. And so I actually, talk, I'll just say this, I told Gina, listen, if there's any younger children here, some of the content that he covers, I mean, I'm going to, what I'm going to say is what the Bible says. I'm not going to try to add or I'm not going to try to make it any more uh, glamorized, but there's a lot of like bizarre stuff in here. There's a lot of stuff that would might be, I guess you could say R-rated that the Bible refers to, and, and Jude explicitly refers to this stuff. So I'm going to just say what the Bible says and just try to say as clearly as we can, this is what the good news is saying. This is what the point Jude is trying to make and how it relates to us. But all that's to say, uh, I think it's a wake-up call for the church. It was a wake-up call for the church then, and it's a wake-up call for us now, and I believe there's an important message that we all need to hear, and at least if we haven't heard it, to remember and remind ourselves of who we are, the threats we're facing, and what God's called us to do and who he's called us to be. Okay, so with that said, let's just pray and then see where the Spirit leads us through this passage, or through, this, through this actual, the whole book. I'll try to make it through as quickly as we can, but uh, let's pray. So, uh, Holy Spirit, uh, we do thank you for your presence that is with us every single day as we worship, just sense your presence. Thank you for your, your goodness and kindness to us. Thank you for your steady influence and love in our life. 
I pray that now as I speak a spirit of truth, you would bring a spirit of truth, of clarity and wisdom and some of the haziness that comes over all of us, myself included, just by living life in a culture that is not, and a, you know, ethos that is not necessarily geared toward pursuing you as the top priority. I pray that all those things would be stripped away. And what would remain is a genuine sense of your love for us rooted in the, in the spiritual reality of where we are now. And I pray that these 30 minutes uh, in our hearts, would, that whatever you would say would be more influential than the 300 minutes of any other, um, other voices that might want to distract us from what's, what's true. And it's in your name I pray for that for you and your presence and all those things. Amen. Amen. All right, so let's dive in here. The book of Jude, guys, buckle your seatbelts, get ready. There's some really weird stuff about to happen. Okay, so here we go. <laughs> Jude, uh, I'll read it. Uh, a servant, if you want to follow on the book, it's like at the end of your Bible, so you can follow, but I'm going to put it up there much easier. Uh, Jude, a servant of Christ Jesus and a brother of James to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father, and kept uh, for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love to you be yours in abundance. Uh, you think he's writing, he's like, he knows what he's about to write. He's like, mercy to you guys, because look out. Um, but anyway, so Jude is, although we don't know these things with like 100% certainty, it's, mo- it's most likely the way he's writing, the brother of Jesus and one of the apostles. So that's, that's why it's called the book of Jude. Um, and he is one, was one of the apostles, and one of the reasons it's included in the canon, which is the original grouping of Scripture, is because it, if not it was Jude, it was written in the spirit of something that Jesus himself would say, and the apostles who passed, who were entrusted with proclaiming the good news of Jesus and the teaching that the apostles had proclaimed that Jesus had trained them to do. It's the core message of Jesus. Verse 3. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write this to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They're ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only Savior and Lord. Okay, so what Jude is doing is he's framing the reference, this book for people, is he's saying, listen, I feel compelled I feel urged to tell you about these threats, to contend for the faith. And that's the title for today is contending for the faith. And there's two reasons. And he's saying, uh, we'll get to that in a second, but he's saying, listen, you need to fight. So that contend means to fight, fight like uh, all Philadelphians should know well, this guy. That's Rocky Balboa, in case you don't know. Uh, the, uh, the, her- the hero of the Rocky series. So, yes, Sylvester Stallone, but in, we're talking about the character. You know, he gets knocked down, he gets up again. And, and nothing's going to keep him down. So Rocky is this character who, who just is like the classic underdog, and he kept, keeps getting beaten. He just fight. He's a fighter, and he will fight and fight and fight because he knows what he's fighting for, why he's fighting for, and he gives it it all. And it, uh, Rocky is kind of the image of that this word contend is, uh, kind of brings up as we think about the connotation of what Jude is actually trying to say. He's saying contend, fight, keep fighting. You're in a fight, 
remember, and keep fighting for what's important. And what he does in these two verses here in 3 and 4, he, he frames there's two real big threats. So there's, think of it as like a left jab and a right jab that you're going to get hit by. Okay, so on one jab, the right jab there is going to be that he's saying there's these individuals who are using God's grace as a license for immorality. And the thinking, as it goes today, is that, well, God is so gracious and loving and caring and kind, right? So, therefore, I can do whatever I want uh, with my morality. I, because God loves me and forgiving, he's a forgiving God, and he wants to give us freedom to do whatever we want, then we should be able to be free to do what we want with our bodies. You know, one of my uh, friends who's a pastor uh, recent, or told me the story, and he said, he said there was this couple in their church, and they were very prophetically gifted, and they felt God had told them, and they weren't married to each other. I think they were in some marriages with other people that God gave them a special dispensation or special grace to then go off and have a, like a, an adulterous affair because God had told them to. So, and then what that ended up doing not only destroyed their families, but it almost destroyed the entire church. I mean, it was a, it was a bloody mess, spiritually bloody mess. It wasn't physically bloody. But it was, it was really quite a terrible story, very sad. But this is the impact that immorality has on people and on families and on individuals and on churches. Really, unless believers contend for the faith, you know, we're gonna, we can be taken out by our own sin or we can fall into deception thinking that, listen, God is gracious to me, so therefore that means I can do whatever I want uh, with my sexual life and with my body. But in fact, that's not the case. See, God's grace is never an excuse for immorality. And Jude is making that point because this thinking had become part of what the church uh, was thinking. And again, we can cite many examples, and I'm not going to for the sake of time, about how that kind of thinking has infiltrated the church. I alluded to some of that earlier. But the second, okay, so there's the right punch. The left punch or the left jab you have to look out for that uh, Jude is framing here is people who deny Jesus as Savior and Lord. And so people who deny Jesus as Savior and Lord. And the way people often hear this today is you hear it not directly necessarily like that, but people will say, well, Jesus was just a good, good teacher, right? Have you heard that? Or Jesus was just a prophet. I was speaking with someone this week who said, yeah, well, you know, Jesus before, you know, what did he say, uh, you know, about, and he was speaking about eternal life. He's like, well, but he was just a prophet and he taught so-and-so. But people have that belief that Jesus was, Good teacher. Most people believe he was a good guy, right? Great, Jesus was great. But he, he was just a teacher among many teachers. He was just a, uh, a prophet among many prophets. And we know that, practically speaking, um, that has some implications. Uh, you, you may have been familiar, this was popularized in a novel uh, by Dan Brown. Do you remember The Da Vinci Code? There was, a, there was a movie written about this. But if you've read that book or listened to that movie, even Tom Hanks at the end, he, he says that very explicitly. He's like, you know, Jesus wasn't anything special. He was just like another good guy or teacher. But that, that kind of thinking is starting to infiltrate uh, the church. And we often think, and some churches will uh, go as far to teaching that as well. But according to Jesus, the reason he died, the reason we celebrate communion, he died on the cross, uh, rose from the dead, uh, and, and made the kingdom of God available. The reason he did that is because there wasn't any other way. If there was another way that we could be made right under heaven before God, uh, then Jesus didn't have to do any of that. That was all pointless. And so what Jesus did was a very 
very specific thing for a very specific time for very specific people, us, so that we could be made right with God again. That Jesus himself said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. So we have to be aware of the subtle ways that the messaging comes across that points around Jesus, that he's not actually our Savior, he's not actually our Lord. And you can fall off on both ends. You can say, yes, Jesus, and there, here's another big one too. Yes, Jesus, you saved me, and I believe in you to save me, but I don't want you to be, you can be my Savior, but you can't be my Lord. It's, I've heard it said this way, is that people want the kingdom, but they don't want Jesus as their king. You can't have one or the other. Jesus is the king of the kingdom, and if you want his salvation, it means walking with him as your Lord of your life, that he's in charge, that he's the king. Uh, just as we have this new king coming in, and we start thinking about kings, but Jesus is the king, and in order to align ourselves with his salvation plan, we need to submit ourselves to him as Savior and Lord, and not just pick and choose one or the other. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Okay, let's take a look at uh, verse 5. So now he goes on to explain a little bit more in detail both of those. Okay, so verses 5 to 7, he says, though you already know all this, okay, and he's going to talk about things that we don't already know about, so we'll get back there. But he says, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who do not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion, and they serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Okay, so he says, you already know this, and then he references these three stories that they, he knows his audience is very familiar with, and it's likely, or if not certain, it was a Jewish audience. Okay, so here are the three stories. And I just want to fill it out just in case you're not as familiar with these stories. And so some of the, I'll go into a little bit of detail, but I won't go too crazy with it because these, you could go off on a rabbit trail. But first story he mentions here is the Exodus. So the, the Egyptians were led by God, were saved. He um, basically, God just one by one picked off all the Egyptian gods to show his deity over these gods, that he was the God of the, the Hebrews and his lordship uh, usurped and went well beyond the Egyptian gods. But they rebelled against him. They saved him. They're out in the desert. And then in Numbers 25, it describes a story where despite having seen God's grace uh, in all of these things, there's a group of unbelieving Israelites who began to, these men, who began to engage in sexual immorality, like as a group, uh, having sex with Moabite women. And this, what happened as a result is that a plague broke out in all of Israel, and this plague began to destroy, and it ended up destroying 24,000 people, which I think is, in, in mass, one of the biggest casualties suffered because of, of what they did. And the plague finally stopped, and you can, like I said, if you want to read more about this, and I'll refer to it generally, but in Numbers 25, when Eleazar the priest took a spear and put it through a couple who, in front of the entire congregation and Moses, were doing what they wanted to do, and it was only at that point. So I'll, I'll be a little bit vague about it. But if you want to read it, Numbers 25, pretty shocking what happened there. Story number two, and I've wanted to preach a sermon series on this whole background of this thing, but I'm going to do it in one or two minutes. So 
story number two that he's references is Genesis 6. You might be thinking the angels did not keep their positions of abandoned. Or what in the world is he talking about? Okay, for more detail, you have to go back to Genesis 6. And Genesis 6 is referenced, the background information that's written there is a reference to a book from the Apocrypha, which the Old Testament writers use as their source material, as well as Jude. So he's going to reference, although it's apocryphal, meaning it's not included in the canon, it has helpful reference material, and it's used to fill in the gaps of information that the original writers were writing from. So in Genesis 6, what had happened was that these members of the divine council, these heavenly beings who sat next to God, they rebelled against God simultaneously while the humans were rebelling. So it's all somehow interconnected. They came down, they saw that women were beautiful, and so these, these godlike figures, these divine figures, came and had sex with these beautiful women and then gave birth to creatures called the Nephilim, who then became the giants and the heroes of old. That's all. Well, I'm not making any of this. You can read it right in Scripture. This is what happened. So basically, these hybrid demigod creatures became inhabitants of the land and were ultimately the groups when, when God told Joshua and his people to exterminate certain groups, they were primarily or exclusively the descendants of these uh, Nephilim tribes or these uh, crossbreeds between divine rebellious divine figures, and uh, these beautiful, beautiful women. So uh, later on in the, in, the, in the books of the Bible, for example, Goliath, who was huge and big and very strong and powerful, he was a descendant of the Nephilim, an example of these groups of people which God openly told them to exterminate. So what these divine beings did is because of their lust, their sexual lust, they, they crossed heaven itself. These boundaries that God had set in place um, engaged in their sin, and it gave birth to a whole uh, bunch of problems that are beyond our understanding. But God, it says that God is kept the uh, dark spiritual prison ready for them as judgment. So that was that was the consequence for that. Story number three, Sodom and Gomorrah. That story in of itself is, if you understand what was happening there, I mean that was that was maybe even worse, or if not so. But basically, God had sent burning sulfur from heaven like a meteorite that just basically incinerated this entire town that you could see from miles away. Now, why would he do that? Or what was the context there? Well, it says, he even mentions it, but basically Sodom and Gomorrah was known for its sexual immorality and perversion. And in the story that you read there in Genesis, what had happened is, is that God was saying to Abraham, he's like, listen, I'm going to destroy this town. It's really bad there, the sexual immorality. What they would do, and you can read it in the story, their regular practice as exemplified by Lot and what Abraham and all the, the angels experienced. God had sent angels down and they were disguised, or disguised, or they were in the form of men. And these men arrived, and what another group of men tried to do was to basically gang rape these two visitor angels. Like, that was how they regularly treated their guests. That was the kind of culture that they lived in, and that was the, the feeling, the, the way that life was lived in this city. And so you get a sense here, as you go through these three stories, you're starting to see, we're starting to see a very clear pattern uh, in Genesis 19, in, uh, um, in Genesis 6, and then in Numbers 25, that there's this pattern of sexual immorality. And just so you're clear, or uh, as, as Jude writes, just Jude is writing, just so you're not, if you're not clear, here's three references 
to clarify what I am talking about, referencing things that happened in the past, but saying, well, actually, you know what happened then? That's happening now, and that's the threat that we're currently faced with. And so he's saying, listen, don't ignore these stories. It's happening right now in the church, and God, whether we, we you know, whatever our opinion is, God condemns and judges sexual sin in people. Sexual sin and perversion are two things, or is, is part of what is, is, is part of rebellion against God, and God respond, doesn't respond the way that uh, we might think he would. You know, it's not really a popular idea today, but that sexual immorality is a form of rebellion against God, is that we don't have the freedom to do whatever we want with our bodies or to do whatever we want sexually, that not everything is okay to do sexually and with our bodies. In fact, God says there are clear standards and part of what it means to submit to the king is submitting our sex lives to the kingdom of God. And really, sexual immorality, what, would that, what does that even mean? Uh, but one a very simple way to describe it is that sexual immorality is any kind of sexual activity that you engage in that is outside of the loving context between a husband and a wife. So all the different forms and variations and permutations of sexual expression that fall outside of what Jesus teaches is what sexual immorality is. And it's very different uh, from in our, to our modern culture, isn't it? That celebra- actually not only embraces it, but celebrates sexual expression in all its, in all its forms and ways that we, we see today. But it's becoming more and more normal. And so Paul, uh, sorry, Jude here is writing, reminding, listen, remember these stories. Remember what happens. It might not seem like it to the way that the church is going, it may not see, seem like the way the culture is going, but God doesn't change, and God consistently deals with sin by calling people to himself and away from it. And part of, now let me step back again. So when we're listening to this, it, seems, it can seem shocking, or it can seem, or some people, I could imagine someone listening to this and saying, well, you know, um, I, what about those churches or people, those groups uh, like Westboro Baptist Church, it's just say, you know, God hates gay people or God hates people who are immoral. That, that, that's actually not, not the message here. What Jude is saying is that, in fact, in, be, the tone behind it is that God loves all people, no matter, what, no matter what they do, no matter how far they are away from him. But he's saying it's out of his love. Listen, be warned. Because of my love for you, don't go astray. Because of my love for you, don't turn away. See, ultimately, what sin does, sin doesn't turn God away from us. See, it turns us away from God. And there's certain lifestyle choices that we can make, actions that will turn us away from God and his kingdom. And Jude is saying, listen, you've got to be ready for this threat. All right, let's go into the next verses here. In this same way, verse, is that, is that verse 8? Yeah, I believe it is. In the same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on sexual beings, celestial beings. And even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare condemn him for slander and said, The Lord rebuke you, yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. And so Jude lists these three characteristics of ungodly people here. They, um, they reject authority. We mentioned that. Pollute their bodies and heap 
abuse on celestial beings. So what in the world does that mean? That seems kind of bizarre. But a big um, clue to that is this conflict he mentions between the archangel Michael and the devil, who were previous members of the divine council. They were part of this divine family. And what happened there is that as part of that, they, they sat by the book of God and they're described in the prophetic books. You can read a little bit more about this. But he's making the point that there are these heavenly um, positions of authority. There's these beings that are so much more powerful than we can under, ever understand. And these people are heaping abuse on them as if, as if it doesn't matter. As if they know better than God himself. Or they know better than these celestial beings. Or they know. And so much, I mean so much of what these people do is they, they masquerade as super spiritual people, but really, in today's age, we see kind of the same kind of thing in, in different ways. And how do we see that? Well, so much of the philosophy, and you can kind of sense it, the philosophy of today's age is so much about that our feelings, that what we have inside of us, our feelings determine how I should live my life. So what we're doing is we're putting the authority of our life, of how we should live based on ourselves rather than some point of external uh, point of view. And it's very important, actually popular. I have a friend who's a professor at a secular university. And he is, and I mean, talk about students, you know, in school, you know, talk about cultural things. But at the university level, especially in English and humanities, if you even come close to saying something about Jesus or Christianity, that you are heaped abuse upon abuse upon abuse. And he almost, there's many uh, Christian professors have been overlooked because of their jobs because it is so contrary to the way of thinking of that where the authority actually lies. And, you know, once, once you know, you reject spiritual authority, well, everything else kind of falls, falls in line. Um, you know, I, it was Robert, you may have heard this term, but Robert Bella, Robert Bella, he um, is a sociologist. He coined the term expressive individualism. And basically what that idea captures is the idea, the philosophy of the day, is that I get to determine what I can do. I am the ultimate source of authority in what I do with my body, in what I do with myself. You, I can, you know, how can you tell me what I should do with my body? You know, basically you should be true to yourself. And that is the ultimate aim, and that is the ultimate authority, is being true to yourself. It's basically like trying to use yourself. Imagine you're in a dark room with no point of reference, and, and someone tells you, okay, walk north. And you're trying to use yourself to point, to go in the right direction without any external point of reference. And that's essentially what we do when we're, when we're living out expressive individualism, using ourself as a moral compass. You, can, you just... Just physically, practically, logically, you cannot use yourself as a point of reference, and it works same in the spiritual realm. We are not our own points of reference. We need some external point to point us north so that we can head in the right direction. See, our feelings are not our ultimate authority. Jesus is. And that's the good news of the gospel that Jude's saying. Our feelings are not the ultimate authority on our lives. And practically speaking... We live this out daily, don't we? Are we going to pay attention to what our feelings are telling us to do? Or are we going to do what we know is right and follow and submit ourselves to Jesus and his kingdom? 
And that is the war that is in our flesh that each of us face every day. Are we going to choose to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness? Are we going to take off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, as Paul writes about in Ephesians? And this, my friends, is what Jude is getting at. It is the war. It is what we are contending for in our relationship with God. Are we go, who are we going to submit to? Are we going to submit to our, our feelings of what we want to do? Are we going to submit to Jesus? And every day you are going to face this fight. You are fighting, you are in, a, in, an, in an arena, whether you like it or not, or whether you know it or not. You're being punched in the face every day. Left, left hook, left job, right upper, uppercut, knuckle sandwich, all these things are coming all the time. But they, where do they come? They come in your mind. This is, see, the primary place of spiritual warfare happens between the ears. And we're going to be subjected to philosophies and ways of thinking and images and videos that tell a story that is contrary and contradicts the story that God is trying to write in each of our lives. And so will we choose? Will we choose to follow our feelings or will we choose to follow the king of the kingdom of God? And you know what? God gives us freedom to choose that. And you will end up going and you will end up in the direction of whichever you choose. By God's grace, we are given the gift of faith to follow him in this kingdom. And so I'd encourage you to walk with grace, walk with God, in what he pursues for each of us. And I want to keep an eye on the time because, man, there's so much in here, but I don't want to, I want to take too much. You know what? I'm going to, what I'm going to do, there's, there's a lot of good in here, but I think it's too overwhelming. And we're getting, I think we're, you guys starting to get the point of what Jude is saying at least? So I'm going to skip a lot, so I want to spend some time worshiping. And I, I value that because we're getting close to the end. But let me skip to the end because, um, because I think it's important. Okay, so I want to go to verse 17 and 19. Tell me when I'm... Oh, I wish I didn't write those numbers. So, Oh, 12, okay. 15, 14, 17, 16, 16. Thank you, okay. Okay, so we're going to skip to the end here. So wrap it up and worship and spend some time praying. Okay, so basically... He talks about how these people, he, he gives like, in case you didn't get the point, guys, he gives you like three more examples uh, from the Old Testament. So you can read those, like the story of Cain and the murder and Balaam and the de- deception, the greed of Korah who got swallowed up by the earth and th- how these teachers are consumeristic and things like don't follow them, okay? So don't follow people who are all about themselves and not about others. Um, okay, so verse 17. But dear friends, so he's going to say, so he gets to the conclusion here. Remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who follow their own ungodly desires. Okay, a great summary of what he had been saying all along. And these people are those who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. And one, one, one comment, I just, cultural, uh, cultural comment. I'm not, really, I'm not really talking about culture wars and politics here, okay? And that's not what Jude's trying to get at. And we can get caught up in that, that whole thing. And one of the things that I found to be helpful is that we can't expect people who don't believe or who are not Christian to, to hold to a Christian ethic. Do you, do you understand? You can't expect someone who has not committed their life 
to Jesus to do what Jesus says about your sex life. There's, this is a message to the church, primarily. I mean, there's a warning here for people who rebel against God. But the ultimate issue is not sexuality. It's your relationship with God. See, if you get your relationship with God straight, then all of those other things will follow suit as you submit to Jesus as the king. So just a little note that this is a message to the church here. But he says here, be warned about such people. They're, they're here today. Okay, so then he goes to 20. Here's he gives us the practical application. We'll finish with this. Verses 20 and 21. Okay. For some reason, they went like subscript instead of superscript. So that's why I'm like looking like I'm an old man, like just trying to. Not that there's anything wrong with old men, like, but you know, as they get old, your eyes kind of go. That's what I'm trying to say. Okay, onward, upward. He says this uh, But you, dear friends, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. See, that's the heart right there. There's fire coming. What is our role? To, to save and to snatch and to be the hands and feet of Jesus and love. Why? How? To sh- by showing mercy. Mixed with fear. Okay, so it's mercy. It's both and, truth and grace. Hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh, which I th- that's kind of probably a metaphorical statement about the old self there, about taking, taking off the old self and putting on the new self. Okay, what do we want to say? Let me just finish with this. And I know uh, this, this can be a lot, and thanks for bearing with me here. <laughs> We're in a fight. We're contending. The me- message Jews trying to make, contend for the faith, because listen, eternity hangs in the balance. This is important. This is very, very important. What we're talking about here, in fact, in the light of eternity, it's the most important thing we can talk about. It may not be the most important thing in most people's day. Maybe you have, you know, to go on a bike ride like we're going to do, or you're going to have fun. But listen, we're talking about eternity here. Contend for the faith because eternity hangs for the balance. You're in a fight, whether you know it or not. You're going to be assaulted. You're going to be punched. And I'm not going to do it physically. I'm talking more spiritually, although that might happen to you spiritually. And if you want to fight like a contender, you need to train like a contender. This is what his encouragement at the end here. If you want to fight like a contender in the fight, you need to think like a contender. You need to think and you need to train like Rocky. So I want to remember those training scenes that Rocky has and he's telling them, show mercy, train, attach yourself to Jesus, all the things we've been talking about, abiding in Christ, keeping yourself close close to God, um, taking prayer, inviting the Spirit into your prayer life, not just going through rote uh, religious things, but engaging with Jesus himself by the power of the Spirit. Keep yourself close to Jesus. We're in a fight, my friends, for our faith. You're going to get punched, and God wants to equip you and strengthen you by his Spirit for what's to come and what is coming and what is actually here now. Okay, so I'll stop there and I'll, I'll let you, what we're going to do is I want to let the Lord just finish and give some space and then we'll, we'll finish up with a couple, couple songs. So um, let's just, let's spend time waiting in his presence. And I'll give some direction. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take whatever that was, um, said today that truly is of you and of your heart and you would use it as a wake-up call and you would bring to light bring to light anything that needs to be confessed or any engagement that need, 
ways that we need to re-engage where we've lost or been distracted. Come Holy Spirit. John writes that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of all unrighteousness. And perhaps the Lord is inviting some of you here to, to turn. What, what we do is, if God does expose, if, God, if there is a way of life that is not, you know that is not pleasing to him, we, we confess those things. We repent. We turn. All it means is to turn. In God's hands, there's always mercy. When we turn to God, it's always love and mercy. And so perhaps today, in your heart, maybe for the first time, or maybe for the hundredth time, you say, Lord, I, I turn to you now. I confess that I have gone my own way and followed my own feelings. But Jesus, I want to follow you. Because I believe and I trust in faith that you know the way. Now help, help me live that way today and this week. In Jesus' name, amen.